Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hello, I'm Mark Trichel, and thank you for joining me for this episode of With Flying Colors. Today, I'm joined by Deborah Arndell, who's the president of Armor Advisory Services. Deborah, how are you today? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you. I'm excited to have Deborah on today. We're going to talk a little bit about Bank Secrecy Act and a few other things. But before we get into that, Deborah, why don't you tell me a little bit about your career and where you've been and what it is you're doing now? Thanks, Mark. I've been in financial services for about 25 years. I usually say quarter of a century, but that just sounds so long. Within that 25 years, I've spent about half of that actually inside of institutions working for them, learning retail operations. And as part of that work, I've done a broad array of tasks and been in a number of different positions, including chief compliance officer, BSA ML officer, chief risk officer, fraud manager at institutions anywhere from 150 million all the way up to 86 billion in asset size. I've been regulated by the OCC, the FDIC, the NCUA, and various state regulators. I've dealt with a lot of various situations, including drug trafficking, people trafficking, identity theft rings, significant internal fraud situations, murders, cyber events. Of those 25 years, I've also spent a couple of years in the audit world. So going from that 30-foot view within the institution to that 3,000-foot view in auditing how institutions do things more broadly across my geography, which was in the Northeast, managing audit for BSA ML, lending deposits and personal trust, as well as helping handle some projects across the United States where subject matter expertise in fraud and BSA ML was needed as well. I then left the audit world and went up again into supervision, which allowed me the 30,000 foot view across the United States, as well as some international countries and how things are done and was with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. I was an examiner in charge, senior examiner, supervising examiner, and eventually the officer in supervision responsible for compliance across all of the portfolios at the New York Fed, including community banks, regional, large domestic, small and large foreign, as well as the systemically important financial institutions like Chase, City, Deutsche, Goldman, and also sat on the Board of Governors compliance management group representing the second district and helping to drive policy and make changes within the larger Federal Reserve System. I left the New York Fed and started my own advisory practice. This is the sixth year of that. I say consultant, but I actually consider myself more of a trusted advisor and a strategic partner to my clients. And in that six years, I think that's also been fairly representative of the variety I've had historically, whether that was inside of institutions or with with audit supervision. And that's having designed and managed and executed SA AML lookbacks, being involved in doing detailed analysis of automated AML solution, helping banks and credit unions strengthen or rebuild and vendor management, they compliant, all the consumer protection laws, fraud, information security, information technology, cybersecurity, dealing with some mergers and acquisition, really stepping in, in a number of roles to, to assist those institutions in moving the programs forward, or in some cases, rebuilding them after there's been heavy regulatory scrutiny. So that brings me to today, being part of this podcast, really being able to dig into some of the risk topics. So Deborah, that's quite a resume. And you hit it from all three sides. You worked within the banks. You worked 
for the regulatory body. And now you're consultant slash advisor to the bodies that you used to work for. Casting that with the journey that I took, 30, I had 33 years at NCUA, so I had the regulatory view, and now I have that consultant advisory view. And I've had a few aha moments when I changed sides and things that, that I learned becoming an advisor that I didn't realize when I was at NCUA. So I want to ask you, when you moved to the Fed and found yourself working on the regulatory side, were there what were like the biggest takeaways once you were sitting on that side of the fence that you hadn't realized? when you were working in banks and credit unions? I think the primary observation for me, and it's really important that the regulatory agencies have people that work there that have actual experience within institutions. So I think the Federal Reserve was really trying very diligently to bring in people that had that background. The reality is that when you have an examiner on site, you never really know who you're going to get. You want to get someone who's rational, logical, reasonable, And a lot of times that's largely tied to what their exposure experience has been historically in understanding the work that you do. And so I often compare this to my time in law school where you have a professor who teaches you theory and you have an adjunct professor who teaches you the application of the law. And sometimes they're very different. So I think one of the things that I really loved about my time there was seeing how they started to really bring in more people with that background so that you could apply that information and understand the theory and the application of those laws so that you could provide better advisory oversight to institutions and not play the gotcha mentality that I think a lot of people are fearful of. So that was the primary observation is that this is, I think, a shift in the way that at least the Federal Reserve is starting to look at the people that work there and the people that are out in the field evaluating these institutions. That's a great point. It's the wisdom of crowds. If everybody that a regulator has starts at the regulator and doesn't have any real world experience, that leaves blind spots. NCUA went through a very similar time period where we realized at NCUA at the time that we needed to get some hands-on expertise, led to the formation of some specialist position where for the most part, the agency would go outside and bring people from the outside again so we could expand the agency's understanding of particular discipline. So that makes perfect sense. So Bank Secrecy Act, from some of our previous conversations, you cover a lot of different risk management areas in what you do as an advisor. But in many instances, people particularly seek you out for Bank Secrecy Act work. And that's actually how you and I came to know each other relative to a couple of credit unions that we're both familiar with. However, so what led you down the path of Bank Secrecy Act becoming particular expertise that you excel in? Could you go into that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. My career in financial services got started in customer service, answering phone calls in a call center. And it was incredibly interesting to hear about the things that were going on behind the scenes with the customers. And it piqued my curiosity about fraud when we had customers we knew were engaging in it or were the victims of it. And so I ended up leaving customer service and going up to the fraud department and eventually running that department, again, for a very large institution, about $13 billion at the time across seven or eight states. And fraud is an incredible adrenaline rush. It is, I loved having all of the staff and there would be an event and they're like meerkats popping up over the cubicles. Everybody's excited. It's just nine, 10 hours of adrenaline rush. So what wasn't to love about it? You learned so much. You got to deep dive into the systems. You knew every stroke of every teller key and how to find things. And it was just this incredible environment. And the thing with fraud is as if that activity hits a certain threshold, it is reportable under the Bank Secrecy Act. So I was then exposed to BSA AML. And a few years later, 
is when 9-11 happened and the introduction of the USA Patriot Act. And I was the person charged with deciphering all of that and figuring out how to implement that across the organization. And when I started law school, which was around that same time, I was automatically moved into compliance because of the legal component of that. And so that began this lifelong love of this law that I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but it was first introduced the year I was born. So I think we were meant to be together. There you go. Before we, we dive into Bank Secrecy Act, anti-money laundering, and where we go there. So when, like you said, fraud, it can be scary, it can be exciting, but it's definitely adrenaline rush when hit with it. And one of the things about fraud is little controls and the opportunity. And with the world that we've lived in for the last two years, with credit union staff being a little bit less on site, perhaps over this full two-year period, and NCUA exams having been off-site for the last year. What's your thoughts on what that might do for opportunity as it relates to either within credit union or with at the member level? If I understand the question correctly, we live in an incredible, an incredibly difficult and challenging time with part of what we talk about. We talk about banking. People are really surprised when I start talking about psychology and human beings and how we react to things. And we as human beings either head towards pleasure or we move away from pain. Those are the two things we do. And given those two things in front of us, we will always move away from pain before we move towards pleasure. And in this time of the pandemic and with the COVID benefits fraud and the remote work environment, we've got crypto, we've got the marijuana-based businesses, we've got talk of inflation and the Russian-Ukraine war. We are so busy moving away from pain right now. And I think that this is going to reveal itself in the next 12 to 18 months, the impact that all of this is going to have on the people that do this work. And certainly on the map. Having a banking background and having done so much in credit unions now, I have a new appreciation for how different they are, but also how similar they are. But the credit union aspect that I really love is that it really is member driven. They own it. And the people side really, truly matters. And I think process has a tendency to eclipse the people side of the business. But our members are, most people are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do the best they can at the time with what they have. So I think the unfortunate reality is that when human beings are put into positions of pain, they react in ways that they may not have done historically without that factor. So for example, with the loss of jobs or with loss of family or with feeling the stress and the overwhelm of COVID that people are behaving in ways that we wouldn't historically expect them to. So fraud is certainly on the increase. And with that remote work environment, the bigger challenge is, yeah, how do we continue to identify those situations that we need to triage immediately, but balance that with our member needs? How do we focus on potentially expanding what we provide to our members to prevent them from needing to act in a way that may be fraudulent that they wouldn't do under normal circumstances. I think that it's going to play out in relatively short order now that we're starting to see kind of light at the end of the tunnel. But we have seen an an increase in fraud and we're seeing it an increase in fraud with our members and not just new members, which historically has been like the red flag. How long have they been here? Now we're seeing it with existing members as well. And it's like the person whose family is starving and they steal food. Would they normally do that? Probably not. But under the circumstances, when your push comes to shove and that pain is too great, we do things that we didn't think we were capable of doing. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It really does. You coned in on exactly what I've been thinking as well. And when you frame it in the pain versus pleasure 
side of it, there's things that are going on, as you stated in the world, that puts people in situations where they may make choices that they might not otherwise make if if the playing cards that they had in their hands at that time were different. No, that's, uh, oh, and I think that's a really great way to look at it. And the question for these institutions, for credit unions, is what can we do to get ahead of this? What can we do? And I'll give you an example. We knew there was going to be a run on funds coming out of ATMs when the pandemic first hit. And so we knew that we were going to have larger sums of funds coming out. And so we immediately changed an internal policy that we're still going to file documents and do the things we have to do, but we are not going to put the same pressure on members not take those funds out, to have to jump through hoops to get those funds out, that we want to make sure that we are assisting them, um, but we still want them to be safe. So is there another way for us to ensure that they get those funds, but they're not walking out of a branch with them? So these are the kind of things we need to think about, which is why my background is so broad, because all of these areas are interconnected. And here we are talking about BSA AML, and we're talking about fraud, but there's also now this whole business continuity disaster recovery piece, that pandemic testing, if institutions had actually gone through that process and could have sat around a table and said, okay, let's predict the worst case scenario. What are some of the things that we would want to do for our members? What are some of the things that we would want to get ahead of? That's what that process is for. And that's one of the reasons I love BCDP because it's just, it's that let's test it. Let's see what's going to happen. And I think now we're going to see a lot more institutions doing make testing, but it is critical for us to try and understand if we could project and predict, what are we going to do? What are all the things that could go wrong and how do we at least try to be a little bit preventative and proactive? And I think that we were caught with our pants down a little bit, even though there was really no cause for that. Good point. So, Deborah, the every January NCUA comes out with their examination priority letter, and I've spoken just recently spoke at CUNA GAC on this topic. I have two other podcasts where we walk through the eleven priorities that NCUA established. But one priority that is always on NCUA's letter to credit unions is Bank Secrecy Act. And before we started, in our previous conversations, you and I have talked about the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, which is coming into place. So there's some changes in the rules that are, can you speak to your take on CUA's priority letter, specifically on Bank Secrecy Act, and perhaps the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2022 and what that might mean for credit unions out there uh, moving forward? Certainly. The NCUA seems, as I think most of the prudential regulators are, very focused on the, the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. And so I think it's fair to say that you know, again, right now that's country facing, not a lot has happened with the rulemaking behind it. But I do want to talk about a little bit of the, at least a few of the significant portions of that, because I think eventually what's going to happen, we're starting to see a few updates to the FIEC's BSA AML examination manual, but that manual is for examiners. That is not meant as a rule chain, the rules that are promulgated and communicated by the prudential regulators. So we're starting to see a little bit of, I think 2022, we're going to start to see FinCEN actually kick in and we're going to see some of these rules coming that are in fact going to be promulgated into regulation or stat. As far as the act goes, some of the key provisions, and people have probably looked at these, and again, we could talk in detail about a number of them, but I think the ones that are probably stand out the most, the first one is related to the whistleblower rewards and protections, simply because the Bank Secrecy Act has had a whistleblower component within its requirements or regulation since its inception. But previously, it always said that the Treasury may pay a reward to those that actually provide the original information that led to the government recovery of funds. Now it says shall pay that award. 
that small shift in language is, pr- is pretty powerful. So that is one of the more significant ones. And then also it eliminated this, the previous cap, which was only a $150,000 award and replaced it with ceiling that's, and I think it's like 30% of the government's actual collection if the sanctions that are imposed are exceeding a million dollars. Now, they're going to take some other factors into consideration, and there are some other things to talk about there. But the fact that cap has been removed and replaced with something that's significantly higher, I think, speaks to the intention behind we need to get this information, we need to move forward with it, and we don't want to penalize people for wanting to do the right thing. We want to incentivize them to do the right thing. The other thing is that the new protection provisions will prohibit employers from The standard engaging in retaliatory behavior, whether it's threatening people, harassing people, discharging, demoting. So anybody's whistleblower, um, the protection applies to those where the information is specifically tied to money laundering and and BSA violations. And those who actually report the suspected wrongdoing to their employer versus to the government directly are going to be afforded protection by this, this change in law as well. But what's really critical here, I think, is that Most, the employees of most of the banks and credit unions, this section, this new section exempted employers who are FDIC and Federal Credit Union Act insured institutions. So they are not covered by these new provisions. And that means that for most people at credit unions, the employees of most banks and credit unions are going to have to continue to rely on the existing whistleblower protection statutes, like those that are under the Federal Deposit Insurance Act and the Federal Credit Union Act and seeking redress. So some of this doesn't apply to some of the people that will be listening to this. And I'm guessing, thinking out loud, that the reason since NCUA and FDIC have mechanisms under which they can be protected, they didn't want to create which rule might rule, or they felt comfortable that the NCUA and FDIC rule said another way that the FDIC and NCUA rule afforded appropriate protection, which is why they're carved out. And that's usually, yeah, that's usually what happens is that as long as the laws are fairly equivalent or the protections are largely equivalent, or that this one isn't lesser than, or if it was greater than, of course, it would still make sense to keep the previous protections in place instead. So yeah, anytime we can avoid undue confusion, that makes sense. We've seen this historically with laws that, again, we want the stronger one in place, or if they're equal, we don't need both. So it's good that they've removed the duplication to the extent it exists. And in the different roles you've played from an advisor, from an employee, and from a regulator, I'm sure you've been exposed to if not all different softwares and tools that are out there for financial institutions in their toolbox. I'm sure you've seen some really, really good softwares, really good tools that that the financial institution, in that regard, are there, I'm not asking you to say what your favorites are, what is a infrastructure for BSA, the credit union? Are we talking about, are you asking me about specifically the monitoring tool, the identification tools for Anything that that my question triggers that anything <laughs> pops into your head relative to that that statement. I suspect the question really is the one I get the most, which is what's the best automated AML solution that we can use? There's no good answer to that. I always say that automated AML solutions are very much like financial institutions. For the most part, they're very similar. There might be some minor differences, but ultimately we end up going to the place that serves our own personal needs best. And so with automated AML solutions, the reality is that most credit unions are using Verifin. And it's a little bit different than other automated tools in the fact that it is risk-based instead of rules-based. And so with a rules-based system, 
you could have hundreds of different scenarios that are very nuanced. If somebody deposits X amount within this time frame and does this within this time frame, then we're going to trigger an alert. Whereas Verifin is risk-based, which means that it's really firing from just a dozen or so scenarios that are pretty broad categories, cash in, transfer out, and transfer out, and transfer and cash out, structuring, international flow of funds, funnel accounts, human trafficking, those sorts of things. And so they're pretty broad. And what Verifin is doing is taking and assessing risk score based on factors that are not known to financial institutions. It's considered to be black box proprietary to Verifin. So all you get is a risk score based on the factors that they use. And then anything that fires at a risk score of 80 to 100 is traditionally what most credit unions are looking at. And then anything below at 79 or below is considered a no alert, meaning it's still there, but it's not actively populating your alert drop when you get it. So there are a lot of, I will say the best tools that I've seen are not even AML related because a lot of these products, again, are very similar. It really just depends on, again, what you're looking to get out of it and the functionality and how it applies to the products and services that you offer. But the coolest tools are actually on the fraud side. And I know we're talking about BSAML, but again, there is some overlap between these two. And with fraud, I was blown away when I first started working in fraud and realized all of these protections that are in place that you don't even think about. And there was, and I don't think it exists anymore, but there was something called deposit check, And this was a long time ago, but it was really cool to think that what you would do is you would, as an institution overnight, is you would send all of your check deposits and the checks that cleared your customer accounts, you would send them all to this location. I won't say where it was. And they are getting information from you and from US Bank and from Bank of America and Wells Fargo. And they're comparing. So if you've got a check deposit from Bank of America, they have that person's information on file, the maker's information on file. They start to compare and then they shoot out this report and it starts at priority level. So it'll start with like stolen checks and then go down the list to NSF being last. And it was like, wow, like they're actually spinning this overnight. And so you're shutting down accounts before eight o'clock in the morning and business opens and you're just, again, you're on top of it. So I find the fraud tools are really cool. The AML tools are, again, they're fairly vanilla and innocuous across the board. There's nothing that stands out for me, whether we're talking about Verifin or Patriot Officer or you know, anything through Brigo or whoever may be providing it. I think what's really interesting is I think eventually the BSA AML tools are going to exceed fraud tools in their coolness because we're going to start to see some artificial intelligence. It's one of the, I think, with the AML Act, we're going to start to see changes in how we go about identifying some of this activity because it is getting more and more challenging. And then we can talk about all of the white noise you get with these systems as well and optimization and calibration. But there's a lot of chasing down to capture very little. And I think artificial intelligence may be able to help institutions narrow that down and say, you know, instead of those law applies across the universe, right? That 20% of our effort gives us 80% of our results. You got it. And 
The same is true in AML. We're looking at 20% of your members are usually driving 80% of your activity. The question is, who are those 20%? And how do we get our data down to just reflect those people? And I think that's really the challenge. And so I think a lot of the AML tools haven't gotten the credit they deserve. But the fact that you can take something that 15 years ago, we were doing manually with paper, with report. You're trying to look at a wire report and a monetary instrument report and a cash report and try and what loans does this person have and try and do some human analysis around what that means. And you just can't, unless it is very blatant, that rare occurrence where that person's depositing 9,900 in cash three days out of the week, it wasn't obvious. And so you had a lot more work to do. And so the fact that we have this now computer technology that does a lot of that for us is incredible progress. But I think we're going to see a lot of movement in the AML space, particularly as we see the reach of this AML Act going a little bit more global now, beyond correspondent accounts into foreign banks themselves. I think we're going to see some movement here and we're going to have a bunch of vendors and really smart people doing some work that are going to help institutions narrow this down and stop the chase. So it's exciting times for BSA and, and the tools around it with AI, with big data and the ability to analyze trends and different things. It's going to be a, an interesting next decade, it sounds like, in this whole arena. Going back to your example about a, a risk score that comes out of Verifin, and if it's over 80, that's a red flag, if you will. So if some, someone is using Verifin and, and they were to call you up and say, hey, Deborah, I'd like to chat with you about either implementing Verifin or using this tool that we have better, what type of conversation follows that? One of the first is obviously is most institutions have their system in place. So if they're using Verifin, this is probably where I see the most opportunity for credit unions. Look, historically, I don't think it's a big secret that BSA AML on the credit union side has not been as heavily scrutinized as it had been on the banking side. That has changed now. And the NCUA is on top of this series of statutes and regulations. We've seen incredible fraud happening at high levels in credit unions. We've seen these conservatorships taking place, including municipal credit union in New York, where the CEO committed $10 million in fraud. And having spent two years inside that entity, helping them build and restructure some of that and happy to report they're out of conservatorship now, you start to appreciate a little bit more about how critical these systems are and we start to see the, you don't want the monetary system to fail. You don't want credit unions to fail. We're seeing the numbers fall. We want credit unions to be successful. And I think part of that is to really take some of these other compliance areas incredibly serious and do all the right things with them. Look, we are notorious for, although we like to move away from pain, we sometimes are our own worst enemy because we do things that increase our pain. So for example, you always, you know, we've all done this, right? So I'm leaving the house. Do I set my alarm? I'm only going to be gone for an hour. So I think I'll just leave it. It's fine. Your house gets broken into. And then you have to pay a lot more money to replace your goods and get a new alarm system. Or it's like, oh, it's, I really need to get there. I'll just be speeding for 15 minutes. It's not a big deal. I probably won't get caught. I get pulled over. There's always something that we do and we become our own worst enemy. And so one of the things, one of the conversations I have with a lot of credit unions is, look, Yes, you have to be preventative. You have to be proactive. I am, Mark, unfortunately, usually called in when it is way too late. 
And the pain is already being applied heavily to these institutions. And what I would love to see, and I wanted to see it as a regulator, I would have loved as a regulator to see a world where the exam reports were empty and blank because there were no violations, that everybody was doing everything correctly and I didn't need a job anymore. I say the same thing as a consultant. What I would really love to see And it's the reason I stepped out of regulation and supervision into the advocacy position and named my business Armor is because I really do want to protect institutions from really unnecessary penalties and scrutiny and reputational damage that comes from having poor programs that, again, they don't need to be that way. The stuff isn't hard. It just takes some effort and some attention. And so My goal is, and the conversation I have most often is, look, it's not cheap, but it's going to cost you a lot more down the road. And the question isn't, when are you going to have BSA AML, or isn't, are you going to have them? It's, when are you going to have them? And with the NCUA cracking down on it now a little bit more heavily, and the states also applying more pressure, we are going to see more and more DORs related to BSA AML. And that opens you up to additional scrutiny and potential fines from the regulators, from U.S. attorney's offices, district attorney's offices, and the reputational damage that comes from some of that, whether it's a consent order or administrative order. And so I think it's really imperative that institutions see this as an investment, that why should I worry when an examination comes? I'm confident in my program. I tell people, I don't get paid to come in and fix your technical issues. I will come in and fix your technical issues. But my goal is, I'm like the boxing coach. I'm going to come in and give you all the confidence in the world that you're going to be able to maneuver and get this fight over quickly and as pain-free as possible, because when the regulator shows up with their shovel, you're going to be able to take the shovel out of their hand, drive a backhoe over, jump out, hand the regulator the keys and say, dig a little bit deeper. There's nothing to see here, right? We are so confident what we are doing that examination doesn't cause heart palpitations. It's no reason, as I've said to you, to take a drink. It should be something that just happens periodically. And it's your opportunity to show the regulators, this is who we are. This is what we've done. This is what we do. We know we're doing it right. You may find some isolated issues, but there is nothing systemic here that you're going to be able to identify that's going to cause us heartburn. Very good. You're reminding me of a John Wooden quote, which is, if you don't have time to do it right, when will you have time to do it over? And you can look at it from the cost perspective. I think you're right that NCUA has gotten better at it. Credit unions have gotten better at it. But what a great story it is to be able to play the concerns of NCUA when they come in to see that you've set your program up in a good way. So with that, what would you say if you were a credit union out there today, what would be your three or four biggest things that you would focus on relative to this whole topic? If you, if you look at, again, I want to be clear that we, we did not finish our conversation about the AML Act, but I want to say about that right now, just to put that aside, because that is not one of my top three or five, is that's future facing right now. We're going to see how that plays out. And I think there's a lot of worry about what it means. I think essentially it's going to put more pressure on institutions to take a much more nuanced risk-based approach to BSA AML. So you you're going to have to do more work around your risk assessment. You're going to have to make sure that your tools are well-designed. And again, that you are really tailoring things so that you can focus on what the real risk is to your institution instead of, again, chasing down all this stuff. So until those laws are actually written, and probably one of the bigger ones is beneficial ownership. And I think because of the changes to beneficial ownership, a lot of institutions thought, hey, we're not going to have to deal with that anymore. That's not true. Right now, those laws are going to run in parallel. And so that work hasn't stopped. But 
I think the concern is always, oh, we're going to have to do more. I think you're not going to have to do more. I think you have to do better. And so with that being said, what I would say to institutions is if it was my institution, my first focus would be on the actual automated AML solution. I think that this is the time to do what I call a meter assessment. Like it's a combination of a, it's a thermometer, a barometer, a seismometer, a speedometer. It really is looking at doing a full temperature, pressure, speed, force, duration check on particularly Verifin for credit unions that will expose those immediate like critical level gaps in the design, its effectiveness. And it allows institutions to formulate a plan around how do we increase efficiency and save time and money and our resources and also save ourselves from, again, the regulatory scrutiny. So I think the system is the first thing is, right, you have to really get underneath Verifin. And my experience has been with it is that most institutions have not either set it up correctly and or are not using it to its full functionality. And so they are losing some of the benefits. And I've been in a couple credit unions recently where there are just a host of issues that we were able to, I spent three to four weeks going in and just really doing this meter assessment of Verifin. And it's kind of a combination of, it's a little bit optimization, a little bit calibration, a little bit validation. And it really allows the institution for me, here are all your gaps, here are the more significant ones. And probably the most significant part of reviewing Verifin so thoroughly is one of the things that institutions don't do often enough is with this 80 risk score in Verifin is the question is, how do you draw that line at 80? What's going on in 75 to 79 risk score, right? Is there something down there we're missing? A lot of this work will shed light on where are you actually seeing your activity? And there was one credit union that I could see a clear gap that they had nothing between 70 and 79. So I could actually look at them and say, you don't have to do below the line testing because you're not seeing enough activity to warrant it, which is a huge time savings. It's something you don't have to think about quarterly or semi-annually to go in and make sure you're not missing a bunch of stuff. Or on the flip side, is there something we can stop looking at? Even something that's 95 to 100 does not tell you it's higher risk. That doesn't mean you're going to be filing SARS on it. So I think there's just a lot that comes out of this assessment. We could go in and go into a ton of detail about the things that you look for, but that's first and foremost, and that's the system itself. And the bigger questions around Verifin are, you've got let's say you have 200 transaction codes in your core. The biggest question is the interface with Verifin. So I've got 200 tran codes in my core and I've only got 190 in Verifin. So what's going on with that? Do, am I missing something? Do I have, first of all, is all of the activity being accounted for? And if it's not being accounted for, where is it housed? So for example, some activity is not going to flow between your core and Verifin. Some good examples are you're not going to see like a bill exchange that took place. That's not really, it's transactional, but usually that's captured in a report from a branch that says, hey, this person 5,000 in, 5,000 out, depending on how it's keyed, you may not see it. Mortgage loans are another good example. The origination side is fraught with potential laundering and, and fraud. And yet you don't see that part of the transaction. What you see are the mortgage loan payments, but you don't see any of the documentation, any of the other red flags that may be present. So there's data that, first of all, isn't flowing into Verifin. So the question is, even though we've got this information and we're reviewing it through an alert, what do I know about my member that I have to go out and now pull in manually? Do I have to look at gift cards manually because 
they're not interfacing with Verifin. Am I getting my wire details? Is Are the ACH details coming in there? Do I have to go somewhere else and grab them? So the first thing is to understand your universe of what's manual and what's automated. And then within that automated space, really understand, how, is it working well? Um, are there changes that need to be made? Is it picking up on stuff we don't want it to? Is it missing stuff that isn't? Do we have administrative controls over it so that we don't have our staff making changes to parameters? Because that's a big no, right? Change management is really critical. So the system itself will tell you, I would say that's probably, if anything, it's about 50% of your problem because everything flows from that. It's operating at about 80 to 85% of most credit unions. All program is the system. So if it's not serving you, we need to get it to serve you. And we need to get your staff up to speed and train them on how to really navigate their fence so that they're going through these investigations and alert dispositions very quickly. And then there are all these little tricks, right? Like, why are you assigning this investigator cash and transfer out and a bunch of structuring and also transferring cash out? Give one person all of the cash and transfer out because then they're thinking about the same thing like an assembly line. Assign them out that way. So there's just all these little tricks and stuff that we can do to really expedite the amount of work that you're able to execute with fewer people in most cases and have you do it in a way that is not only coming to a better conclusion, a faster conclusion, but a more consistent conclusion. The reality is that when we go through these scenarios, because again, there are only about a dozen of them and four of them are driving most of your alerts. It's those four big ones. I mentioned them a couple times cash in transfer out, otherwise known as CETO, transfer in cash out known as TICO, or in transfer out known as TITO, and then structuring. Those are the big four. We see the highest percentage of alerts being triggered by those four scenarios. So if you have investigative protocols in place where when I do lookbacks, and I do lookbacks, you're going through so many transactions and alerts so quickly, you start to see a pattern of how you actually go about disposing of that. So why aren't you documenting that? Let's document what we're going to do for all CETO. What are we going to do for TITO? What are we going to do for TICO? What are we going to do with structure? What are the questions we want to ask? And you start to formulate a roadmap that people follow so that when you have more than one investigator, you have consistency in your decision-making as well. And that has been one of the biggest complaints for regulators is that two people are coming to a different conclusion with the same set of facts. So the system itself is largely the biggest concern. And if you can get that analyzed and have somebody come in and say, here are all of the things, fantastic. The second part of that then is with these automated solutions, particularly Verifin, one of the things I'm able to identify is if I have concerns that a regulator who is really looking at you would say, you know what, I think we might have a potential five-year look back here. Nobody wants to hear five-year look back. Nobody wants to be mandated to go back five years and repopulate every alert that may have been missed and redo investigations and file SARS. It happens a lot. Again, I've done them. And what ends up happening is a huge resource drain. It's money drain. It's a time drain. But I can usually look at the results of this Verifin meter assessment and tell you, do we need to do some, I call them SIRS, S-I-R, some self-initiated reviews? So I can give you a better gauge of whether or not if a regulator identified an issue, we've got some support to say, no, we disagree. And here's why. And here's what we found. We did our own review and institutions like, yeah, but if we tell the regulators that, aren't they going to, doesn't that set up a red flag? The argument I've always made, and we started our conversation here is 
it's really important to have examiners who are rational, logical, and reasonable, people that can apply the law and understand it. You don't always get that benefit, but where you have one of those people, they truly understand that the point of compliance, and BSA is a compliance function, that the point of compliance is to identify issues, correct those issues, and then implement processes to prevent those from reoccurring. That's what compliance is about. And when institutions do that, you should be encouraged as an examiner that they're actually managing compliance the way that they should be. Yes, they've made some mistakes. Perhaps they had it over. Perhaps there are other reasons for it. But this is what we want them to do. The point isn't to penalize. It's to make sure that the institutions are doing the right things for the monetary system. And the other thing I think that institutions don't understand is, well, what's going on with these SARS? What's happening with these? Why are they important? One of the things I've seen, again, from doing lookbacks is how many members have not two relationships, but five, 10 different banks they do business with. So they have segregated themselves across multiple institutions. So you're only getting a small sliver of what that member is doing generally. So you've got this little bit of activity coming in and you're looking at it and you think, I don't know if that's suspicious or not. I, I always share with people is I want you to think about it like this. You are taking Polaroid pictures of your members. So when you send in a SAR, it is like sending in a Polaroid picture to FinCEN. And if other institutions are also sending in Polaroids on that same member, eventually FinCEN is going to be able to make a movie. They're trying to make the movie, right? So our job is to make sure that we are sending in the right Polaroids, that we are not sending in some overly exposed or underexposed junk that's not going to move their case forward, that we are making good decisions. And that's why it's critical. So the system itself is number one. It will always be number one. And then the self-initiated review to see if we have some issues that were identified, but is that going to cost us an historical review? Or can we understand if we were to do a partial, like, Basically, I called it self-initiated review because it's not mandated like a look back would be, but it's essentially a mini look back is let me go into the mini look back and we'll see what's there. Is there really cause for alarm? Is there cause for concern? If I go in and look at some of the gaps we identified and we're seeing that of every 10 I look at, five should have been SARS, then we've got some work to do. But if we complete that work before the regulators identify it, it's no longer a mandated look back. You've already corrected it. So those are the two big things. And then if I were to go down the list further, I think that another important thing is, I've said with the, the risk assessment, risk assessments for BSA AML all too often at credit unions follow the model form that's found in the FFIEC's BSA AML examination manual. It's not a bad model, but it's not intended to just be some static event that takes place. A risk assessment is dynamic. The better job you do on your risk assessment, whether that's quantitatively or qualitatively, and I this isn't just BSA, it's also consumer protection, ACH, fraud, IT, cybersecurity, anywhere you're doing a risk assessment, the more time you invest in truly bringing in a robust picture of what's going on in your institution, the more you can focus on the things that really matter. And a really good example of this is on the consumer protection side. So you will have a financial institution that says our commercial loans are high risk, so we have to look at them annually because flood insurance is really high for commercial loans. I'm like, why do you have flood insurance under your commercial loans? Why don't you pull flood out separately? Because it does impact most of your extensions of credit on, on real estate. And 
look at flood that way. And then commercial loans have nothing else within them that are high risk. So you can move that out to a three-year review and save yourself a ton of time and just focus on the issue. So we can you can manipulate the risk assessment to have it move you in the direction you want to go. It can be, again, it can serve you. It can be an asset to you. It doesn't have to be this, this terrible, dark process with dementors flying around, sucking all the joy out of the room. It's actually your best friend because it allows you to utilize the limited resources, limited time, limited money that a lot of credit unions have to, again, focus on the things that really are impactful. And with the AML Act and this focus now that's going to be coming with an additional risk-based approach, I think this is going to serve credit unions. The other thing about that model form is none of the categories are risk-weighted. That means that IRS correspondence is equally weighted to the quality of your compliance program. They're not the same thing. So what I like to do with risk assessments is I also risk-weight each one of those categories and say, well, this one actually drives about 30% of the result. That's how important it is. This one, IRS correspondence is less than 5%. So even if I don't get IRS correspondence, that is not driving 10% of my risk score. It really is nominal and it should be nominal. So I like to go through and really do a fantastic risk assessment so that you could look at your institution say, these are the three, four, five things that are really driving our risk score. Let's get our arms around those. Let's get better mitigating controls in place. Or perhaps we don't mind our residual risk being a little bit higher, but we need to be able to document that and support it. Um, And so the risk assessment is critical. And it's one of my favorite things to do. And I don't care what topic it is. We all do risk assessments every single day. Do we have locks on our doors? Do we lock our car when we pull into our driveway? Do we live in the country? Do we live in the city? Is it midnight? Is it 6 p.m.? Do we feel a little bit more confident having our windows open because of the hour of the day or, again, the neighborhood we live in? Do we look at our the police reports to see where these people are living? Or, you know, do we have exposure? We're doing it. Do I cross the street against the light? We are doing it all the time in our heads. The risk assessment is just formalizing it on paper and forcing you to document it. And I think it's one of the best exercises exercises. And I love the dynamic nature of it. And then the other thing that touches the risk assessment, the fourth thing would be change management. I think that's the most critical thing to an organization is you've got staff changes, personnel changes, service changes, product changes, regulatory changes. What happens at institutions is they don't have a centralized process for bringing in all these changes into a central group of people that represent your institution, the people doing the work that can make the decisions. All these changes come in. This group gets together, says, okay, let's tear this apart. Let's figure out who it applies to. And let's come up with an implementation plan to get this distributed out to the organization And then once we part of that implementation plan is we have to update policies, we have to update procedures, we have to go through our risk assessment, we have to look at our compliance review schedule, and we also have to look at audit. And we're going to have to figure out then how do we test this and again, get it fully executed and implemented and do that in a way that doesn't exclude someone that needs to be at the table. Good example of this was when customer due diligence became the big thing as part of the SA Patriot Act is people started talking about occupation and employer as part of the account opening process. But I can assure you, marketing was not at the table when this conversation was taking place. And that data is something that a lot of people would want to utilize. So when I see that someone is getting a new account and you've got a branch that's saying, oh, this person's a lawyer, 
I guarantee you when you go into the system and pull a report, what you're going to find are 2,000 different ways attorney and lawyer are interchangeable and abbreviated and misspelled. There is no consistency. So when marketing needs to go in and pull a particular segment of your member base because it's going to help either target a loan product or an advertisement, they can't do it because the data wasn't even, they weren't included in the conversation about why is this important to you? How do we make sure that you get what you need? BSA, we know you need it. Branches, we know you need it. Who else needs it? And let's come up with a plan that benefits everybody and make sure that we're doing all the things that we need to do to be successful as an entity, right? That this is not me versus you. Every single area of every single financial institution is a customer service center. I don't care who you are, that's what you do. You provide service to other people that you work with. And the question is always, how can I help you? What can I do? And my mantra, it's always been my mantra, is that communication is the most important thing or I'm sorry, communication is the hardest thing that we do every single day. And relationship building is the most important. And one can destroy the other in a moment. And part of what I do when I go into institutions is not just, again, the technical work. That's the easy part for me. It's how do I help you see the culture differently, to see your interactions differently, to see you as one whole unit with three incredible lines of defense that are working together to keep the regulators, the wolves from coming in, right? That's ultimately what your collective goal is. So let's build those relationships. Let's start talking. Let's start thinking about ways that we can help each other. If I can train the branch staff better to deal with a customer or a member who may be structuring and they can get better information from me up front, it reduces me having to send requests for information on the backside. So we're helping each other. And these are the kind of things I want institutions thinking about is again, we need to get back to the business of helping our members and serving our members, we can't do that if we're fighting about who's more important, back office, retail, or what you're doing versus what I'm doing and why you're making my life so miserable. We have to understand each other. And I just think there's so much opportunity in institutions to understand the culture of what they're doing and the people side of the business that I can't fix the technical long-term if I can't fix the people side as well. And so... Again, I see this as more of an investment that you get to come out of this with a better program and a different perspective. And that's really what my passion is that lights me up is how do I change the perspective around this so that long-term it's sustainable? Because without sustainability, none of these changes matter anyway, right? If you don't have a means to sustain it long-term and to capture change and roll it out effectively you are eventually going to go back to where you were before. And that is a terrible use of funds. And that was a long-winded way of saying your system, <laughs> potential look back, change management, risk assessment. And if ever I could train a board of directors on risk management, that to me is also really critical. They need to understand and hear it. And the benefits that banking boards usually have over credit union boards and supervisory committees is that Banking boards get paid a lot of money to show up for the board meetings. And a lot of the credit union boards are either volunteer or it's very nominal pay. These people are doing it because they want to. They feel it's their duty to do it. And so I think I would love to help them really understand the real world implications of these things. And what are the right questions to ask? What are the things that we should be thinking about and have them really understand what risk is and what they can do at the very top to help the credit union be wholly successful and give those members as much money as possible. Deborah, that's a fantastic summary. A lot of information there to unpack. A lot of things I think I might want to follow up in some separate conversations. 
And while you were giving that summary, I wrote down a few different things. One of the two of the words you said that I'm going to I want to highlight here. But I also was reminded something you said reminded me. I think it's a Stephen Covey quote, which is first seek first to understand and then to be understood. And if you can understand the other side of the equation, the other person in your organization and understand what they have to deal with, then you could help them understand what it is that you're trying to do from your discipline. And then the other three things I wrote down, all are words that start with the letter P. It's clear your passion for this topic. I don't think I've ever heard anybody speak so passionately about BSA. And I can tell it's importance to you. And I can tell that you serve your, you must serve your clients amazingly well. Another word that started with the letter P was back. You mentioned that credit unions have to be comfortable to push back And the reality is the credit union should know BSA better than the examiners because they're living it and breathing it every day, which should give them the confidence to push back. And if you have the proper systems in place, NCUA will recognize that expertise and will will embrace that pushback where the credit union feels it's appropriate to do. And then lastly, and this kind of goes to the systems concept, you mentioned Polaroid. As you were going through and describing the system that are out there that you can use well or you can use poorly, I kept thinking, I didn't think of a, a Polaroid. I thought of an expensive camera that might have 5,000 different things it can do with it. But if you buy that camera and the only button you can push is the button that sets it up, that takes the picture in all the settings that are in place, you're going to get that one particular type of photo and you're missing all the other nuances of what it can provide. And it sounds to me what you can bring to the equation when someone hires you is you can explain those other 999 buttons and how it can make you serve your members better, meet the requirements of BSA better, and create a coat of armor, if you will, around the the risks that the credit union is dealing with. Uh, Lastly, I want to thank you for your time today. I know that when people listen to this, they might want to re-listen to it because there are a lot of good nuggets in there that you put out there for what credit unions can do. But more importantly than that, if Deborah, if someone wants to get in touch with you about your services and what you do for financial institutions in general and credit unions in particular, how would they do that? Well, they can contact me via phone. That number is 917-370-1008. Again, that's 917-370-1008. They can visit my website, which is www.regulatoryarmor.com. And there is a contact form in there. Or they can email me directly at first name, last name, Deborah Arndell, no periods, at regulatoryarmor.com. And I'll get back to them uh, very quickly. And if I could, Mark, I I did want to add, I know that I sometimes don't get invited back to parties because this is the stuff I like to talk about. But I wanted to just say a little bit more about, I mentioned Stephen Covey's comment. And I think one of the stories I love to tell people is where that statement actually comes from, where that quote comes from. And it's a morning that he was on a subway in New York City. And he had just come from a meeting and a gentleman and three children got on the subway car with him and they were running around screaming, being really loud. And at some point, Stephen Covey became so frustrated. He looked at this gentleman and said, can you not control your children? And the gentleman looked at him and said, you're right. I should be. Forgive us. Their mother died this morning. And it's the premise that that we create stories about people all the time. And if we're going to create that story, we should create one that gives them their humanity and that is positive. And that's really what a lot of this is about. And even in institutions is how do we, yeah, how do we better understand and appreciate other people and give them value and not just assume that they're doing things to make our lives more difficult or more challenging, that people are out to get us or hurt us, that we're all just trying to do our jobs. And most of the time, it's just a misunderstanding. And so we can resolve that very quickly with, again, communication and relationships. 
Very well stated. And you taught me something about Stephen Covey there. I appreciate that. That's a good place to wrap. Your contact information will also be in the show notes for this episode. And that's it. Thanks everybody for listening. I appreciate you listening to With Flying Colors today. I hope you'll come back for our next episode. And that's it. That's a wrap. This is Mark Treichel with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 